0: How wonderful it is to gather as a body of believers to worship the God whom we've just heard read about from uh, Revelation, as Mark read to us that passage there, or as he read it in his prayer. What a blessing to, to know that that God who is that glorious is the object of our worship this morning, and even more that He is present with us here right now, that we are, as a local church, an embodiment or expression of the universal church, that we here at Four Corners have Christ with us in our gathering this morning. What a blessing to know that, to be assured of that, that this is not just a gathering of people, an inessential gathering of people, but, in fact, God's people In God's presence. If you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. We are working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And we are in this glorious passage. We are talking this morning about the most pressing topic that a human being could ever consider. That topic is being declared right with God. The doctrine of justification. As you sit here this morning, as I stand up here this morning, and when you come to the end of your life and every moment between now and then, for every single one of us, no question will matter more than this one. Are you right with God. You probably have come this morning with many questions swirling around in your mind. Many concerns, preoccupations, distractions, worries, delights, and so forth. But for every single person, this is the question. And I would say this, whether whether you would answer no to this question, this is the question you must deal with. Or, if you have answered yes to this question, This is what you are always referring back to. This is the air you breathe as a Christian. Right relationship with God. And what we've seen so far in Romans is that is that this question is for every single person on the planet. There aren't just some people who need to ask this question a segment of the human population, but every single person who is alive today, who will be alive tomorrow and so on, and every person who has ever lived must ask this question. All have sinned against God. All have turned aside to their own way. We could say it this way, all are in the wrong with God. All, therefore, are in need of being declared right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where we left off last week, sums it up very well for us. And there's a reason that this is one of the, the, the quintessential Bible verses that people memorize. Because it does sum up well this great need that is universal. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, we have guilt that needs to be removed, slavery from which we need to be liberated, a broken relationship with God that needs to be reconciled, and wrath from God that needs to be satisfied. And the great message of this letter called Romans, this letter to the Christians in Rome, the good news that Paul is so eager to proclaim is that God has made a way. Here's the good news. Here's what we've come together this morning to hear again. The good news that God has made a way for us sinful human beings, just described all of us, to be right in his sight to not be punished to not be condemned for our sin but to be right in the eyes of God like God describes Noah he found favor in the eyes of God that is what God has done in Christ. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, we can be declared right with God, reconciled to Him, and even more, we become His sons and daughters. It's amazing the, the images of salvation that we get in the Bible. That we are not just cleared of sin, but as I said last week, that there is no more grounds for the Christian. There's no more grounds for the infliction of punishment. That is what it means to be justified. And even more, that we call God Abba, Father, Daddy, not just as a formality, but in truth. He is all of that to us. The title for the sermon this morning is Right With God, Part 2. We are looking at a passage that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther called, as I said last week, the chief point and the very central place, even of the whole Bible. Now, there are so many wonderful passages in the Bible. And someone like Martin Luther is probably inclined to identify many passages as central. But it is noteworthy that here, the the sort of catalyst that God used for the Protestant Reformation, for a return to Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, on the basis of the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, that the movement of which we are a part here 500 years later, the catalyst for that, in all of his study, in all of his teaching and reflection, said this here is the chief place. Romans chapter three, verses 21 to 26. Last week we looked at the first part of this passage, verses 21 to 23, where Paul basically summarizes what he said so far in this epistle. And what we could say is that verses 21 to 23 really do capture the high points of everything he said, going all the way back to when Paul introduced the gospel in verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And that's what he's going to get into, but first he has to go into all of the human sin, both among Gentiles and Jews. He has to establish the need for that glorious gospel that has now been revealed in the events of Christ. So all are sinners, but God has made a way, and this has been revealed in Christ, His coming, and in the preaching of Christ By the apostles. That's a summary of what we looked at last week. And so those first three verses give us the revelation and the recipients. The revelation of the gospel in human history. The revelation of Christ in his coming and his atonement and the preaching of the gospel in human history. And the recipients of that gospel, those who are sinners and all people can receive this Christ. Christ is not just for the Jew. He is for all people. Today we come to the second part, verses 24 to 26. And there are three points that we're going to consider this morning. You'll see those up on your screen. Three of the most important words ever spoken. And they're right here. I mean, it's no surprise to us. These, These three things just leap up off of the page. So it's no surprise to us that Luther would say that a passage like this is the central chief place. Because here we have the grace, the cross, and the glory. All presented, wed together, concisely and powerfully, and so clearly, presented here for all to see. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read all of verses 21 to 26. But as I said, our focus today will be on 24 to 26. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for His people. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can go ahead and be seated. Have you ever read more wonderful words than those? Let's pray to the Lord and thank Him for these words, which by His grace, just consider this, by His grace, we're here this morning hearing these words. What a gift! This is a blessing that we are here to receive these precious world-transforming, world-renewing, life-resurrecting words. May we not take this lightly. Let's pray. Father, we glory in the gospel this morning and boast only in Christ We thank you, Father, for these precious words which teach us, instruct us in the good news that is in Christ, through Christ. Father, that raise our minds to worship of the one true living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Father, this is eternal life to know you, and we know you through your word as your Holy Spirit takes your word and transforms our hearts. So God, we come this morning humbly before you. We ask that you would humble our hearts. We ask that you would direct our minds. God, that you would take away distractions, that you would wake us up to the glory of these precious words. Father, that you would change us today That not a single one of us would leave here unchanged. That you would draw sinners to yourself. Jesus, we pray that you would shepherd us as the good shepherd this morning. Those who belong to you, that you would shepherd us with these words. Lord, that you would remind us of your cross work. That you would remind us of our only hope in life and death. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us on the cross thank you for the great cost thank you father for the great cost of giving your son as we read in Genesis 22 that picture of what you did with Abraham and Isaac we thank you father that you have done that for us so we bow now before you and we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning and we give this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin this morning with the grace. The grace. Look at the first part of verse 24, just those first few words. And I'll begin reading at verse 23 because um, it picks up in the middle of a sentence. So verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and here's what I want you to focus on and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here, we get the most basic truth about our salvation, the most fundamental of all truths that what we have, we have by grace. Period. By God's undeserved favor. Paul, in fact, here he uses two phrases to drive this home, or two parts of this uh, clause here to drive this home. By his grace and as a gift, which could also be translated freely. As John Calvin says, the whole is from God and nothing from God us. It is amazing to me, it always has been, that regardless of the specific theology of a church, as we talk about uh, being reformed minded or not, or being Calvinistic or not, or Arminian, all these labels and all this language that we use, it has always struck me that no matter where you go, and no matter what the professed theology is of a Christian, if in fact they are a true Christian. When they give their testimony, it is always what God has done. Because we know that, intuitively. Sometimes the theology in our head does not match up with what God has radically done in our hearts. But every true Christian intuitively knows God did it. God did it. And so as Calvin says... The whole is from God and nothing from us. This is the cry of every Christian's heart. This stacking up of grace language is typical of Paul. So let me give you a couple other passages where Paul sort of brings in multiple bits of grace language. Romans 5.15 For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Your eyes kind of go, you, you get, your eyes go crossed when you read that, because it's just like, whoa, 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 all of this grace language just stacked up. We see it again in Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's Grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Gift, gift, given. Grace. Paul is emphatic. Not something earned, but a gift. Not something deserved, but grace. If you imagine in any way, shape, or form that God owed you salvation, you have not come to understand the Christian gospel. God owes you hell. That's it. He does not owe you a single gift, a single act of kindness, a single bit of favor. None of us. He owes us nothing. It is all grace. Listen to the way one commentator, Douglas Mood, describes this concept of grace in Paul. He says this, grace is one of Paul's most significant theological terms. He uses it typically not to describe a quality of God, but the way in which God has acted in Christ. Unconstrained by anything beyond his own will. Unconstrained by anything beyond his own will. God's justifying verdict is totally unmerited or undeserved. People have done and can do nothing to earn it. This belief is a theological axiom for Paul and is the basis of his conviction that justification can never be attained through works or the law, but only through faith. That justification is a matter of grace on God's side means that it must be a matter of faith on the human side. And this last point that Douglas Moo makes right there between grace and faith is precisely what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. So, in other words, in order to preserve grace, we must preserve that it is received exclusively by faith. It is by faith, in order that it might be only by grace. And indeed, we see faith. Everywhere in this passage, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, faith in Jesus. But this may leave you with a question, and I think it does to some degree leave a lingering question, and here it is. How is it that it must all be by grace if there is faith on our part? How how do we work that together? Grace, all grace, nothing from us, and yet we must believe. We must have faith. Well, I don't want to inundate you with quotes, but I think John Stott has captured this so very well. And I found this instructive this week, so I want to read it to you. This is what he says about the relationship here between grace and faith and how it can be by faith and gives us no merit. Listen to these words. It is vital to affirm that there is nothing meritorious about faith and that when we say that salvation is by faith, not by works, we are not substituting one kind of merit, faith, For another works. Nor is salvation a sort of cooperative enterprise between God and us. In which he contributes the cross and we contribute faith. Is that your view? No. Grace is non-contributory. And faith is the opposite of self-regarding. The value of faith, and here's the crux of the matter, listen to this. The value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object. Namely, Jesus Christ and him crucified. To say justification by faith alone is another way of saying justification by Christ alone. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Do you see that? It's such a wonderful explanation. And then he goes on to quote Luther as saying this, Faith apprehends nothing else but that precious jewel, Christ Jesus. That's what faith does. It is an instrument by which we take hold of the object of faith who is Christ. So let me say this to all of us this morning. Our confidence is not in our faith. Let me say that again. Our confidence is not in our faith. The sincerity of our faith. The quality of our faith. The experiential feelings associated with our faith. Rather, the object of that faith, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our confidence must be in Christ. And I think for me, I grew up uh, hearing so often this language. And you've probably heard this too. And and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this language, but it, it can be misleading and I would hear this often growing up in church. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? It's kind of one of those cliches. It's one of those church cliches. And if you've grown up in a kind of revivalistic tradition, a Southern Baptist tradition, that's the kind of language maybe that you grew up with as well. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And, and for me, growing up in that context, there was, there was always this sense in which In order to rest in Christ, I needed to constantly toil over the sincerity and purity and authenticity of my faith. And if it didn't feel very sincere or feel very authentic, it was all so shaky. Christ is not shaky. Our faith is shaky by nature because we are broken and fallen and we are told to examine ourselves. We are told to make sure that we are in the faith, yes, but this kind of highly introspective way of living the Christian life in which our rest, our security, our assurance is always dependent upon our subjective faith and not in Christ and Him crucified. That's a shaky Christian life. What we have here before us is a firm, solid ground for the Christian life. So that leads us to our second point, which is where I've been getting to with these comments, and that is the cross. So we see the grace, the gift and nature of it all, the favor from God, the unmerited favor from God, the grace. Now we come to the cross. Let's pick up at the latter part of verse 24 and go to the middle of verse 25. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What are we looking at when we place our faith in Jesus Christ? We talk that way because that's the language of the Bible. To believe in Jesus. To trust Christ. Many different ways of saying that. But what are we looking at when we do this? When we place our faith in Christ, what are we looking at? Who is this Jesus Christ? Well, back to this idea of grace and gift. John 3.16 Which I'm sure you also know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God has given him to us, but why did he give him? Christ is the gift, but why did God give Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this one in whom we believe, toward whom we direct our trust? Paul answers this question in two major ways here. We're going to look at each of those, two major ways. So first, Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the ransom by which we are redeemed. Our redemption, Paul says, is in Christ Jesus. So, what is this language of redemption? This is not the language that we hear apart from church. Uh, This is not common parlance. This is not something that you hear in in everyday life. This is not part of colloquial speech. This is a Bible language, Bible talk, church talk. What is this redemption idea? The idea here is deliverance or liberation at a price. This word is used with respect to slaves and prisoners who are released from their bondage by a price or a ransom. So you have enslavement, (coughs) bondage, and then there is the release from that bondage, but it's costly. There's a price for that. There's a ransom for redemption. It is also used of the Exodus, where God delivered his people out of slavery That great event of the Old Testament that all the prophets look back to, the psalmists look back to, this great majestic salvation or deliverance from God, that is called a redemption, a bringing out from bondage. Slavery is at the heart of this idea. This is basic to the human condition. To be a sinner... Is to be a slave. And that's amazing. Because post enlightenment man. Thinks. That in all of his independence. And autonomy. In all of his education. In the glory of science. that, That he. Is free. Finally free. Enlightened. But yet he is a slave. A slave. The sinner. Is a slave. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, you who were once slaves of sin, Paul will say to his Christian readers, they were once slaves of sin. And listen to the words of Christ in John 8, verse 34 Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The shackles are on, you're imprisoned without Christ. Oh, living your little life, thinking you're free and you're a slave. And the ransom price that has been paid to release us from bondage to sin is Jesus' death on the cross. That is the ransom price. And that's why we have the point here. The cross. Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. The son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A payment to release the slaves. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20. You were bought with a price. Every Christian is a purchased one. Every Christian purchased by the blood of Christ the redeemer. The ransom. First Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 to 19, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. But the imagery is not just that we are enslaved to the power of sin. So let me say this. When you think of being enslaved to sin, You may be thinking of the mess that we make of our lives because of sin. And certainly that is in view. The power of sin over us that keeps us moving away from God, moving away from love of neighbor, keeps us moving further and further into our own degradation, into our own misery, our own ruin, and the ruin of those around us. Yes, This is the experiential plight of the sinner. But it's not just that we're released or redeemed from that plight. That experience of being enslaved to sin. Beat down by sin. It's not just that. It is, even more we might say, that we are under bondage also to the guilt of our sin. And the judgment that that guilt incurs. And that's where our next image comes into play as we think about the cross. So first, the first image is the redeemer or the ransom. The second is propitiation. Once again, that's a church word. That's a Bible word. Not one you've probably ever heard outside of that context. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice by which God's anger is removed. That's what propitiation means. A sacrifice by which God's anger is removed. God's anger is appeased. God's anger is satisfied. God's anger is absorbed. Now there has been some debate as to whether this word should be translated mercy seat. Instead of propitiation, and so you may read that, and if, you, if you're reading through a commentary or two as we go through Romans, you may read that, that it has been translated and understood by some as mercy seat. It is used primarily this word for propitiation is used primarily in the Greek Old Testament, with regard to the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat, going back to Leviticus chapter 16, the Ark of the Covenant held the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and it was there at the Ark of the Covenant with its covering on top that the high priest would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. This is how the word is translated in its other occurrence in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.5 says this, Above it... Were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat? Talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and there is the mercy seat, this word used here in our passage. But at the time when the New Testament was written, the meaning of this word throughout the Greek speaking world had to do with appeasing or satisfying divine wrath or anger. That was the common usage of the word. As Paul is writing to these Romans, a mixed bunch, but largely Gentile, that word on the street, if you will, had the meaning of appeasement or satisfaction of divine wrath. And in fact, some have pointed out that this is the underlying meaning throughout the Old Testament as well. So I'm just trying to substantiate the translation propitiation as opposed to mercy seat. That the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies is probably in view in Paul's mind. I don't think there's an either or here. But what is most pressing, what is most significant here is the notion that God's wrath is appeased in the sacrifice of Christ. Most significant for trying to determine Paul's usage here is the fact that the primary theme of the preceding chapters is the wrath or judgment of God. Isn't that what we've been talking about for the last three chapters? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what he says at the very beginning of all of this in chapter 1, verse 18. So what Paul is saying here, if I've lost you, come on back. What Paul is saying here is that Christ has been put forward publicly displayed as the one by His blood, by His sacrifice on the cross who appeases God's just anger against sin. This is God appeasing His own wrath with His own Son. So before... People get all up in arms about a God who needs his anger appeased. And all of the worldly pagan connotations of that see this. That God in his justice appeases his justice by sacrificing himself in the person of his own dear son. More dear to the father than Isaac ever was to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22. The son he waited for, for decades. This is the eternal son of the Father, given freely to save you from his judgment. To save me from his wrath. God has done this. And let me say a point about that. Oftentimes, when we think about redemption, when we think about salvation, we tend to go First, and almost exclusively sometimes, to Christ. Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But notice where the emphasis lies in this passage. It is on the Father. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son. That is what we see here. It is not just the Son... Stepping in the way of the Father's anger. The Father pouring over with wrath. He's going to strike us dead. And Christ steps in between and goes, no, Father, don't do it. Jesus protecting us from the Father. No, that's garbage. That's poor, poor understanding of The biblical message. It is God the Father who sends God the Son. It is God the Son who willingly, obediently gives His life up to save those for whom the Father sent Him in obedience to the Father. And they, Father and Son, pour out the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Christ, into the hearts of God's children to conform us into the image of God's unique Son, Forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let me say this to you. Let me say this pleadingly with you this morning. This is the object of our believing. This is liberating. This is liberating. Wherever you are this morning, experientially, this is the object of our believing. This Christ put forward, this Christ who's put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He's the object of our believing. That's what you must trust in to be a Christian. So let me say this to you this morning. You're wondering, am I a Christian? You're saying to yourself, am I really a believer? There are many places you could go in in the Bible to work through that. And one of those is 1 John. 1 John looks really at the the experiential. It looks at your heart disposition. It looks at your your behavior, your conduct, and so forth. Your relationship to the church, the people of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're asking that question, that's a good good place to go as you're seeking assurance. But let me say this. The only person who is a Christian, period, period, Is someone who has looked to this Jesus Christ, whom God put forward there, there he is on the cross as a propitiation of his wrath by his blood and has received that for oneself before the face of God by faith. Knowing, knowing that there is no more wrath, there is no more condemnation, there is no more judgment because God sees Christ. He sees that blood and he passes over your sins. And you can stare death in the face. You can stare martyrdom in the face and know, my sins are forgiven. The wrath of God has has rem- been removed from me because of that Christ and his precious blood. You're either there or you're not a believer. A believer is one who trusts in this. Maybe you have fuzzy feelings about the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're doing the best you can. So as you see it, you're trying hard. You like the Bible. You like the idea of Jesus. But you haven't trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus to settle and satisfy God's wrath Against you. That's salvation. That's where you must go if you are to be a Christian. Listen to the words of this beautiful hymn by Horatius Bonar Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do no strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Will you be brought safely through? In Christ, be assured, you will. You will. Thirdly, we finish up this morning with the glory What a fitting place to finish. We've seen the grace and the cross as we look at this most majestic of passages, and now we come to the glory. So far, we've looked at how we are justified, declared right with God, by grace through faith. And we've discussed the the relationship of grace and faith. And we've seen the grounds for our justification. The cross work of Christ as redeemer and as propitiation. But now we need to look at the purpose of it all. Look at the latter part of verse 25 to the end of verse 26. What is the so that, in order that? What is the purpose of all of this? This was to show everything we've, we've read. The putting forth of Christ for justification. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One of the questions that we often hear in our culture is how could God send people to hell? That's the angle. How could God be angry with us? That's so unbecoming of God. He's angry? Well, of course, they're thinking about it in terms of human anger as we've discussed several times before. But this is the question. How could God send people to hell forever? Forever. Hell is forever. Forever. How could he be angry with us? And so forth. But this is interesting. The Bible has no use for that question. The Bible not not only gives us answers to questions. It tells us the right questions to ask. The Bible has no use for that question. You can go on asking it if you please. But the Bible comes at this from the exact opposite direction. The opposite. After the fall, the question is not how could God judge? It is how could God not judge? How could God not annihilate, destroy, vaporize all humanity? Ask the question. The world has it exactly backwards, inverted. How can there be people on the earth? Really? How can there be people on the earth, humanity from the time of the fall as it has been described in Romans 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and then in chapter 2 with the Jewish people? The sins that we've read about so far, that's the state of the world. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one who does good. Not a single one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's humanity. How in the world can that be? And God be just. How could God make covenants with sinners The likes of Noah, Abraham, the Israelites, and David. These men are sinners. How could God do that? How could God let Adam and Eve leave the garden without destroying them? And and, and cover them with something. with, With the skin of an animal. Which had to die, by the way. How could God give them a promise in their hearts? In chapter 3, verse 15, if God is just, how can he not fully judge sin? How can he acquit the guilty? How can he overlook or pardon their sin and still be righteous or just? How can he set up a sacrificial system involving the blood of bulls and goats and so forth? This is what's at stake in human salvation. This is what's at stake from Genesis 3 onward in the Bible. We all truly deserve death, wrath, judgment, but God has allowed the human race to flourish. We read it even in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and his descendants. They're the creators of culture. The first creators of culture we read about in the Bible are the wicked descendants of wicked Cain. Humanity has flourished on the earth in many ways and has even, God has even poured out his favor on a particular people, as I mentioned there with Noah, Abraham, David, and so forth. And now Paul is saying that all people can be forgiven and justified in his sight. What? How? Is this really a just, holy judge we're talking about? Because no human judge just Let's people come into his courtroom, and the evidence is all against them, and he says, Yum, I'll let you go free. That's an unjust judge. So, is God unjust? Paul's answer is that God has exercised patience, forbearance, throughout human history in anticipation of Christ's work on the cross. All of human history bent towards the cross. Before Christ. And now. In publicly putting forward Christ. As the propitiation for sin. As the one who satisfies his wrath. As the one who appeases his wrath. God shows himself to be just. As the one who punishes sin. How so? Because he punished Christ. It pleased God to bruise him. This is not cosmic child abuse. This is God satisfying His justice against sin as it pleased Him to punish Christ in your place, in my place. This is what is at stake in human salvation. Let me read you a few verses from the book of Acts. That help us to understand what's in Paul's mind. Acts 14, 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And then in Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So in times past, God has patiently endured the sins of humanity. The sins of his own people. Moving to the cross. But now the cross has come. The Christ has come on the cross. God has put him forward and God has declared to all the world for all the world to see I punish sin. Every sin must be punished because I am the Lord, the Holy God. I am just, everything exists for my glory. And not only just, we read here, but also merciful in justifying sinners, both just and merciful at the same time. The cross is a beautiful display of God's attributes, that at the cross we have a God, the God, who is just and punishes sin. Hence, Jesus' sufferings on the cross, bearing the weight of sin. And we have at the cross the very ransom and payment that releases sinners who look to Him. And therefore, God becomes just and merciful, clearly, for all to see at the cross. The glory of God in the cross of Christ. This is the glory of God revealed in his justice. Our salvation, we need to understand as we close this morning, is not ultimately about us. It is about God being glorified. That's what Paul is saying here. The grace, the cross, which is the grounds of the grace, is all in order that the manifold attributes, the excellencies, the perfections of God's nature be put on display for all to see for his glory forever. That's why you're a Christian. That's why you're saved if you're saved this morning. And if you're not a Christian, that would be the reason for God changing your heart and justifying you is for his own glory. John MacArthur says, salvation is first and foremost a way of glorifying God. So we've seen this morning, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. Scripture alone, I think, is present throughout, as Paul has just reflected on the Old Testament pointing towards this. And now we see The fifth Sola of the Reformation as we think about celebrating Reformation Day this month. For the glory of God alone. That's what it's all about. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our experience. It's not about what we accomplish. It's not about our works. It's about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining through the lives of justified sinners. Ephesians 1.12 is a fitting place to conclude this morning as it says there that all is to the praise of His glory. So we glorify God this morning. We praise Him for His grace. We praise Him for the cross. And we praise Him that He would use us to bring glory to His infinite name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the Gospel, which it so delicately and forcefully at the same time proclaims to us. Lord, we thank you that you pierce our hearts with these truths. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for that work of Christ on Calvary, where he was a ransom and a propitiation. And that by looking to him as the propitiation set forth by his blood, we are justified in your sight. Death is not the end for us. We know you as father and we will live with you forever. God, we praise you for this great security we have in Christ. We are safe. We are safe in the blood of this Redeemer. We praise you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.